live from Los Angeles. This is Yitzi Tovo, Building Jerusalem. Our guest today is Sal Litvak. Sal is the creator of the Facebook page Accidental Talmudist, which is the largest Judaism page on all of social media. Sal, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Glad to be here, Yitzi. I apologize, there's some noise in the back on this construction outside, but hopefully it won't bother your audience too much. We should be all right, okay. God willing. Um, your, your page, Accidental Talmudist, at the heart of it is a, a very simple story. Like, um, your... Uh, you walked into a the mitzvah store on Pico Boulevard, as I heard, and at the time you were just looking for a gift for someone. What were you, what were you doing at the time in civilian life, as it were? Um, so that was in, in 2005, and I had, uh, I had directed my first feature film, When Do We Eat? Um, and we had uh, completed the film, and it was on the festival circuit. Uh, during that year, we were on the festival circuit for a year, um, and, and the film actually underwent a few changes during that year. It was very useful uh, screening with a bunch of audiences, and audiences were really responding to it. Uh, it's the most Jewish film ever made in Hollywood. <laughs> it's uh, about a Passover seder uh, with a very dysfunctional family, um, very dysfunctional Jewish family. And, uh, and we really put all of our heart and soul into that movie. So by, and that was, so, so now in 2005, I'd sort of been in my Jewish journey for about seven and a half years. Um, I mean, I've always been Jewish. I, uh, I had a bar mitzvah. I attended a conservative synagogue growing up, but I wasn't enthused about it at all. Um, I just thought it was kind of a chore and there, I didn't feel... I didn't feel any personal desire to, to do mitzvahs, to learn Torah, to do anything. It, it, it seemed like a chore and it seemed to a chore, seemed like a chore for the people around me that were doing it. Um, and, and what's funny is I always felt connected to God. And I just thought, so I consider myself a very spiritual person. And I thought that Judaism was not spiritual. This is the tragedy of my misspent youth. Uh, and, uh, and so I went looking for spirituality in lots of other places. We've had, a, we just shared lunch together, you and I, Yeti, so I learned a little bit about your journey. Um, and, uh, and so I was definitely always a seeker and, uh, I didn't go looking in other religions, but I, I was looking for practices, mm -hmm. uh, that would connect me to the divine and to the spiritual. So... In terms of this connection to the divine, that, that came to me at a very young age. Uh, I just felt, you know, I was into science fiction. I was, I was a big reader of science fiction. Who, who were your top guys? I loved Heinlein. I loved Asimov. Nice. Um, Stranger in a Strange Land? Yes. And the and, Robot uh, series? Definitely those. And, but also, um, <clears throat> what was it called? Time Enough for Love. That's a great book. Haven't read it. Time Enough for Love is it's the idea that, you know, in the future they solve death uh, and, and, and 
but they didn't, you know, they hadn't solved it before. So this is the first guy that they applied the medical treatment to so that he wouldn't die. So he's the oldest man in the world. Wow. And his name is Lazarus Long. He's 2,000 years old. And he's just lost interest. He's seen and done it all. And he just feels like, well, maybe it's not really natural for us to live this long. And I just want to die. I've had enough. It's not like he's looking for, he doesn't want to commit suicide, but he, he just wants to get off the treatment and, you know, move on. But the culture actually values the wisdom of people who've been around a long time. So they're trying to keep him interested in living and they, they create some situations that would make life intriguing. And that's what the book is about. But at any rate, being into science fiction, science fiction is all about big ideas, mm. you know, and it's about philosophy. It's, it's about not, not so much, you know, uh, you know, Kierkegaard and Kant and, and, and heavy philosophy that no one can understand, but trying to understand what is the nature of the world? Why are we here? Where are we going? How do we interact with others? And, you know, is there life out in the cosmos that would sort of redefine for us what we are once we learn that we're not the only thinking beings right. in the universe? What Those does it do to our of, humanity once we know that there are other sentient beings here? Exactly. I think it'll be very good for humanity when that happens. Oh, good. I hope uh, so. You know, unless they turn out to be really dangerous and evil. And that'll probably be good for us, too. It's always right. been good for the Jews. <laughs> or if depicting them as dangerous and evil is what wins elections. Yeah, maybe. But at any rate, the idea of thinking about big questions was always important to me. And from a very young age, you know, as soon as I heard that there was this big bang, which I just took as a given. So, okay, why was there a big bang? I mean, it doesn't take that much training and education to figure out, oh, okay, well, there's a lot of stuff in the universe, right? The planet is pretty big. I mean, Earth, you know, as a thing, it's quite large. Sure. <laughs> There's 8 billion people on it. And yet it's tiny compared to the sun. And the sun is tiny <laughs> compared to, you know, some much larger stars. And those stars are microscopically tiny compared to a galaxy. And galaxies are microscopically tiny, etc. You yeah. know? So, so there's so much stuff. And apparently, the scientists tell us, all of this stuff burst into being from one location at one time for no reason. <laughs> That's their explanation. And to my seven-year-old mind, I was like, okay, I get it all came from one place. I get that it's all expanding. I get that it's hot and energy and all that. But that it all came into being for no reason? Randomly? That's absurd. It must have been willed. Somebody, something, some entity wanted this to be. And that's God. So then the question for me, and I, I, it just seemed self-evident that this should be a question for everybody, is why? <laughs> why would he do that? You know, What did God want uh, when he created a universe? Um, and, I, and I get that we don't know. Uh, if we, so why would God create this massive, inconceivably massive universe? Uh, why? Why? He had to have some reason. And we may never know what it is. We probably will never know what it is. But to me, it, it just seemed like, obviously, we're supposed to wonder. We're supposed to try and inspect that question, turn over that question. 
because if we never even look at the question, how are we to understand why we're here, you know, and what we're supposed to do? Right. And surely part of our purpose is to be good to each other, to be kind, to create beauty, to create moments of warmth and connection, and all those things are good. Um, and, and, and they are, and, and doing those things and creating those moments and creating beauty uh, will surely be part of the answer of why we're here. But we'll learn better what to do, how to do it, you know, for, for, because we wonder, because we turn this question over and over. So that, that, that just, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm a kind of natural philosopher, but that, that, that question just came to me as an important question to ask and to wonder about at a very young age. This was when you were about seven. Yeah. Around the same time, I don't know if everyone has this, but I remember that it was around that same age. It must've been eight actually, because we moved to a new town when I was eight. But it was, I think, soon after we moved that there was a day when it occurred to me that I had a very close friend. He was my next door neighbor. His name was Mark, Mark Wallenstein. Blessed memory. He died when we were 27. But we were the same age and we grew up together next door to each other, next door neighbors and best friends. And, uh, uh, and one day it just occurred to me that I'm not Mark and Mark is not me. Right. It's such an obvious thought, but I think it's not obvious to children. No. There's this kind of universal mind idea, you know, and that, and that the boundary where I end and you begin is not distinct for children. Sure. Um, but then one day it, it like sort of fell on me like a big realization. And, 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 and there's a lot that goes along with that thought. So he doesn't know what I'm thinking. I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know what he's feeling. I can guess, but I'll never know. And he will never know what I'm feeling, you know? And, um, and in a sense, I think when children learn that, it's crushing, mm. you know, because there's a communication that they assume they had that they suddenly realize they don't have. And, and that will forever struggle to communicate in words something that we thought didn't even need words to do be you, communicated. Do you remember how old you were? This was about the same time, about yeah, seven. About the same time. And, and I suspect that the desire to figure out what the world is all about and to turn that question over and over and to talk about it with people, I, I think it arose from the same energy hmm. of, oh, it's not self-evident. <laughs> right. No, we're not just connected. We're not experiencing the same thing at the same time. Um, so then what is Mark experiencing and, and what am I experiencing? And if, you know, and, and if his ideas are not my ideas and my ideas are not his ideas, then can I ever, you know, communicate my ideas to him so that we have a really good understanding? It, it, it was never, you know, I'm, 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 I think I'm trying to articulate this more clearly now using the experience of a man who's 53 years old to say it, but this all just kind of happened in a flash when I was a little kid and, um, and, and, and so the questions became important to me and I've just been always one who's happy to talk with people about big questions. My wife always jokes, well, oh, there's two kinds of people in the world. The people who get into conversations online in the supermarket, the people who don't. <laughs> right. I've always been one to get in, into conversations because I think that through conversation and conversation is what makes humans human, really. I mean, we have language yeah. and the, the animals don't. 
um, uh, it's how things happen. It's how we create things. You know, you, I mean, if you think about a super tank or a football stadium or, you know, the, the Freedom Tower, the Empire State Building, or a rocket going to the moon, or, you know, any massive project that the humans undertake, how did it happen? Through conversation. Somebody dreamed up that idea and communicated that idea to a lot of other people and infected them with the desire to realize it. Right. Know? And and then everything came from that. It all started in a conversation. So so I mean this is the this this is a very Jewish idea, the primacy of of um, language and creation. Mm. Yeah, that goes all the way down. But so you're you're a, you're a very conversational oriented person. You you were dealing with these big questions as a kid, and how did that how did that right? So so I was your... looking exactly. So I was looking for answers to these questions, and I was always looking as much as I love talking. I was looking for experiential answers because. Because now, as much as I love talking, like that's a way to get somewhere. Mm. But at the end of the day, it's it's just opening doors. It's just talk. You know, like you have to experience something for it to be real, right? That talking about a, a super tanker doesn't ultimately make a super tanker, right? You've got to get all those people involved and then they start, you know, pouring steel and <laughs> melting rivets and doing whatever you need to do to make that ship. Um and so I was always looking for ways to experience to experience the big questions. You could, you could call it mysticism. Mm-hmm. I was looking for experiences. I was looking for activities uh, that would move beyond talk. And do you remember something that struck you as a kid as one such activity? Um, well, as a kid, I guess it's meditation. Meditation is a kind of activity that is mystical, I mean, for sure. Mm-hmm. And I was a, I call it an instinctive meditator. Um, by this, I mean that I would get up in the morning to go to school, right? So get up, brush your teeth, take a shower, whatever you do in the morning. And if I just simply did all those tasks and, and then picked up my lunch and my books and headed out the door, I would feel uneasy all day. Hmm. The way to prevent that uneasiness for me was I would have to get up 20 minutes earlier, brush my teeth, take my shower, get dressed, basically get ready to go. Then go to my room, close the door, sit on the floor with my back against my bed, just a comfortable position. I, I just like sitting on the floor, but I had sort of, sort of like a big pillow-like thing that I would lean against and just think for 20 minutes. I didn't have a mantra, I didn't have a nigun, you know, I wasn't chanting, I wasn't praying, but I just needed time to process Mm. whatever, maybe because when you're asleep, you you get the, you know, sort of like the births of little ideas and and, and then if you don't take a moment to, what, what, what did I dream about or what was I thinking or what was the thing that was important to me? Then the rest of the day, you're like, I, it was something just outside my focus and yeah. I'm not sure what it is and now I lost it. <laughs> so I guess I needed time to sort of capture and process whatever was, was just on the periphery of my mind. And, uh, and so I just needed 20 minutes. I just needed 20 minutes to think. 
Did you set a timer for 20 minutes? No, I just realized it was about 20 minutes. Okay. And I found that interesting later uh, when I was in college and I signed up for transcendental meditation. Mm. Um, And truthfully, I, 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 I tried it out because the teaching assistant in my English 10 or English 17, whatever it was, whatever that course was, was gorgeous. She was like so beautiful, <laughs> kind of young graduate student. And she mentioned that she does this TM thing. And so I asked a few questions about it and she said, she's a teacher. And I'm like, oh, I'd like to learn that. Oh, <laughs> Just be around this beautiful woman. But TM is a practice where you sit and think for 20 minutes, twice a day. You're, you're not really supposed to be thinking. What you want there is to clear your mind of thought by repeating a mantra, Mm -hmm. a a, a nonsense word. I have since learned, and not that long ago actually, from a friend here in LA, Arya Siegel, who actually was an instructor in the TM movement and quite high up in it in the 70s, that TM is quite infused with idolatrous practice. It is a Vodasar. You know, like the mantras are the names of of Hindu gods. Um, And when you get your mantra, you bring an offering and- Oh, wow. You know, I I didn't know any of that. Um, But but still, it was a great practice for me and I did it for, I don't know, a decade. Oh, wow. Um, Seriously for a decade? Like you were committed- Pretty much, you know, and I didn't always get my twice a day every day, but mostly. but uh, but that was only one of the things I did. Other, other, for me, sports was always quite associated with this mystical experience because of the sports that I did. Which sports? <clears throat> uh, so in high school, I was a, as a early in high school, I was a bicycle racer. Okay. Um, I, yeah. Like long distance or short distance? Um, mixed distances, different okay. distances. I mean, what's funny about this is, okay, so when I was in eighth grade, uh, my friends and I got into my first mystical practice, which was smoking marijuana. Hey, <laughs> Okay, young age. I'm ashamed to say I would be distressed if my 13-year-old son was smoking marijuana. Sure. And, and truthfully, the marijuana that people have today is not what we had then. We smoked dirt weed. And, you know, dirt weed? Dirt weed, that's what we called it. I mean, you'd have to smoke three or four entire joints just to get the buzz. Yeah, with dirt weed, you'd have to smoke three or four joints just to feel a buzz. These days, what kids have, I mean, if they, if they, smoke, if they smoke weed, uh, one hit could probably get them more high than we got, you know, with, with many, many, many puffs back then. And these days, they don't even smoke weed. I mean, they, they have these dabbing or I don't even know what they do anymore, but they've concentrated the weed chemically. It's so strong. It's just a different order of drug. But at any rate, mm. what I'm talking about is back in my youth in the 70s. Um, and while my friends would smoke and just laugh, <laughs> anytime I smoked, uh, instantly, all these questions that I'm talking about, the big questions, life, the universe, and everything, would come front and center and become a high priority. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And I would feel that I'd have insights that were not available to me without smoking it. Um, and then, you know, later when I came down or the next day and thought about some of those ideas that came up while high, 
eight or nine out of 10 would be silly. Right. But one or two would be valuable, you know? And so, so I thought that that was a way of bringing fire back from the mountain. Um, Interesting phrase. Were you into the Grateful Dead? Uh, not then, but by 1986, yes, very okay. much. Uh, with the same group of people. Uh, you know, we kind of parted ways when we went to college and then kind of during college, three years later, they, or they got into the dead right away. And then they said, hey, come join us. We're going to a show's RFK Stadium in 1986 was my first show. And it was Bob Dylan, Tom Petty and the Grateful Dead. Wow. All in one day. It was a great show. Oof. Uh, and that was my first time doing acid as well. Hey, muscle <laughs> Which is a much more intense kind of entheogen, right? These drugs, it, it all depends on your chemistry. Mm-hmm. For some people, these drugs are very dangerous. They, I mean, they can lead to schizophrenia. They can lead to all kinds of terrible problems, bipolar. Uh, for some people, they're just recreational. They're just not going to mean that much. They're mm-hmm. going to have a good time. Yeah. And for some people who just happen to be constituted this way, they are entheogenic. And that means that it is a substance that leads you to contemplate the divine. That's what that word means. Hmm. Um, and, and every culture has had its entheogenic substances since the beginning of time. You know, uh, marijuana is such a substance. Acid and mushrooms are such a substance. I've never tried it, but ayahuasca is a very intense um, substance like that, mescaline. Um, and, and there's just different things like this that are used by people who are so constituted to try to experience the divine. But they're very dangerous because some people can't handle it or have a bad response to it. And you don't know which kind of person you are you know, until you tried it. And that's why in those cultures that respect these substances, you know, like if it's peyote, you know, which is, I think, from a cactus. Mm. I mean, you plant that and, and you nurture it for months, if right. not years. And you, and you train with an experienced guide who tells you what to expect and what not to expect and how to approach it. And there's a real respect yeah. for what's going on. And, and, and the idea is not to, you know, do this and then go listen to music or, and then drive home afterwards. I mean, you're doing this to have a life-changing experience. And I think that's what bringing fire back from the mountain is. And it's no coincidence that, uh, you know, the, the greatest moment in human history was God speaking to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai, you know, in a thundering blaze of fire on the mountain, right? right. When he spoke to the whole world. And I think that all these kinds of experiences are just echoes of that. But I, I'm not justifying anything. I'm just telling you what happened with me. Sure. So, um, so, so that was another kind of practice that for me was access to the divine. But I was also talking about sports. And sports also shows this, this sense of you, you might have the flash of insight by doing something like that. You probably won't. You might. But you also can have these flashes of insight through rigor and, and, and through repetition and through controlling the breath and, and through doing it every day. You know, so as a young man, like when I was 13, 14, I was training for bicycle racing. Oh, I got into it because of the, the pot. Yeah. You got into bike racing because of yeah, pot? Yeah, because my friends and I were smoking pot and then my friend's brother got caught 
and he ratted out his younger brother and his younger brother's best friend. <laughs> so Mark and I got caught because his brother got caught. And then they told my parents and my mom freaked out. My son's a drug addict. And, uh, and my father was at work that day. And when he came home, he said, well, clearly you have too much time on your hands. And he was into running at that moment. Mm -hmm. uh, so he had a pair of running shoes with him. And he said, you're gonna start running and you're gonna keep a, a diary and I want you up to three miles a day uh, in I think three weeks. Yeah, that's what he said. Yeah. And, and I had to keep track of it. So I think I ran you know, a mile the first day and 1.2, 1.4, 1.6, got it up to like 2.7, 2.8. And, um, and then, but he was right at the tail end of his running hobby mm. and he discovered cycling. And that looked like a lot of fun to me. So I said, could I try this cycling thing? And then that was good for him because he had just bought, you know, the th like the $300 bicycle. But now that his son was gonna get into cycling, he could give me the $300 bicycle and he could get the $1,000 bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a cyclist thing. <laughs> And uh, so then I started riding and I enjoyed it. And then we went to a race and sort of like a stock bike race and I won it and I got the bug. And then I started training more seriously. And, um, and I really loved it because I mean, when you're a 13 year old kid, you don't have a driver's license, you know, you're just dependent yeah. on people to drive you around your parents. And now you have a bike where it's not just like for going up the block to your buddies, the way they ride their little three speeds, but you have a serious bike that we can ride 20, 30 miles. There's a freedom to that. Sure. But also this rhythm and breathing. And there were times when I would just get that bike going and I was out there and you, know, you just get into a zone. There's something with repeating exercise. It's endorphin. I mean, it's yeah. endorphin related. There's a and there's some access there. Yeah, sure. You know, There's the physical component, but then there's the... There's the deep calm that sets in. There's a deep the calm and it's a little bit of that access. You know, now I have better language for this. Mm -hmm. right? Now I can say, we don't have, we, we think of ourselves as, you know, I'm a body and I have a soul. But mm -hmm. actually I am a soul and I have a body. Right. 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 And, and when you get into certain of these practices, you remember what you are. She, you know? that's a really, really good summary of like the, of that which is that which is captured from mysticism, like that's the that's the big takeaway. Yeah, yeah. And and listen, this is what Judaism teaches so well. Mm. You you are a soul. You have a body, but you have a body for a reason, and it's also for a reason that you don't remember where you came from. What's the reason you don't remember? Because it's hidden from us, so that we focus on this. Mm -hmm. If you become an ascetic who is so focused on the life of the soul and, and communing with the divine, etc., you can't drive the carpool. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you can't earn a living. Right. You can't do the things that you can only do in this world. Sure. So we have a very short time in this life. And Judaism teaches that, no, 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 there's a holy way to drive the carpool. There's a mm -hmm. holy way to dig the ditch. There's a holy way to earn money and to give tzedakah and to be there for your family and to roll up your sleeves and do labor. Um, and don't be in such a hurry to rejoin the divine, to have your soul rejoin its source. Mm. Cause that'll happen soon enough when you leave this world. 
Right now, you can accomplish things here. But as a young, as a young person, I was just very excited to have any of these experiences sure. where I could touch it, you know, feel it, sense it. Um, so the cycling was one, one of these practices. Uh, eventually, because of the cycling, I had, I, I, I always was very successful in school. I, I got very good grades. Uh, we moved to the United States when I was five and it was my parents' dream and my dream immediately. <laughs> I just got the idea from them, but it was my dream to go to Harvard. It was, you know, the college that everyone had heard of. Uh, and it was, seemed like such an impossible thing to get in, but I wanted it. Mm. We all wanted it for me and I wanted it. And to get into Harvard, you need the grades, but that's not enough because there's so many people trying to get in there. And you need something, you know, accomplished and unusual. And cycling became that thing for me because there were a lot of football players, there mm-hmm. were a lot of tennis players, not so many cyclists. Um, and I did win the New York State Bicycling Championship. Um, which probably sounds more impressive than it is because there weren't so many cyclists <laughs> competing at a young age. Still in uh, New York But it was not easy. I mean, I, I had to train hard for that. Yeah. And, um, and I did it. And and eventually wrote my application essay about that. Um, so it definitely helped me get in. When I got to Harvard, I, I found, first of all, a community of people. A lot of people are just regular people, smart, accomplished, but regular in, 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 in the approach <laughs> of mysticism. Right. But among them, plenty of seekers, lots of people who are interested in philosophy and talking about the big questions. So it's never hard to find great conversation. Mm. when I was there. And you could typically find me after a meal sitting with some other like-minded people, just, you know, as uh, who's the poet? It says, rolling the universe into a ball. (laughs) Is that Ezra Pound maybe? I'm an English major, but I I can't remember right now. But it's that phrase, rolling rolling the universe into a ball. Rolling the universe into a ball. And, um, And I was on the rowing team. And rowing very much... Mm. has the same repeating, mm. breathing, pushing yourself. But now with the added beauty of you have to do it with seven other guys. And you have to keep to the pace. The exact pace. Mm. It's not just that your blade has to enter the water at the same time as theirs, pull through at the same rate and leave the water at the same time as the other seven. But there has to be a precision and a rhythm to that which is very, very difficult to achieve. And even on a national championship crew, and we were national champions, you didn't hit that very often, where it's perfect synchronicity. Mm. Um, but when you hit it, it's called swing. And it is otherworldly. There's just, when you really hit that with the other seven guys, it's so, it's so perfect it, 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 and it, let me just say, it costs so much. It, mm. You know, you row every day, hours and hours every day. There's blisters peeling off your hands all the time. Your muscles are always sore. Very often the boat doesn't have swing, doesn't set up well. You're fighting it. it you know, you, you're, you're in, 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 it's Boston. So in the winter, you're not rowing. The river's frozen and you're training on machines and killing yourself. And it, it's an enormous amount of work for these few moments, mm. Now, you don't do it for these moments. You do it, you know, for the races. You, you want to win the races and win the championships. 
But really, I think every rower knows that what you really do it for is those moments of swing. Because when you capture that, like you know that the guy four seats ahead of you had a tough day that day because his girlfriend gave him a hard time. Just because of the way the the oars feel going through the boat. Like that distinction between me and Mark. Yeah. You know, it it does fall away when you're in this synchronized motion with other people. You know, that's what real teamwork is. Um, And so rowing gave a touch uh, of, of the divine. Meditation also came up for me in college. Grateful Dead shows and my first experience with hallucinogens also came up when I was in college. Uh, Judaism did not, you know, I, I, I went to a Hillel once, I was bored, I just assumed I knew what it was. Uh, I, I actually hosted satyrs, um, but what that meant was we went to a restaurant on Passover, order whatever food that restaurant served, sushi, Mexican food, whatever, and told the story of the Jews going into slavery and coming out of slavery. To me, that's what was in Passover, what's important about Passover. I always was a proud Jew. I always, you know, and I went to Israel for the first time when I was in college as a member of the U.S. Maccabee rowing team. Mm. So I went in 85. Um, and I loved being there, but I wasn't drawn to Judaism. Mm-hmm. That would come later and it would come, I graduated in 87 and 10 years later in 97 when my grandmother died. I've written about this. I won't make a long story of it, but for your audience, my grandmother Magda, she survived the Holocaust. She carried my mother as an infant through a concentration camp. My mother was a baby in Theresienstadt. Imagine how hard it is to take care of a baby anytime, anywhere. Now imagine doing it in a concentration camp. Oh. So my grandmother managed to keep her baby alive. She lost her husband, uh, who was the great love of her life, and she was waiting to be reunited with him for the rest of her life. Wow. She was very, very happy for people who reconstituted families after the war. She went to many weddings in the aftermath of the war and rejoiced for the bride and groom. Often people who had lost their spouses Mm. in the camps and started over with someone else, another survivor. But for her, there was only her Imre, her husband. And so we all knew that, I I called her Ita, which is Mm. short for Abuelita, which was too long of a word for me. Abuelita (laughs) means grandmother, like the diminutive form of grandmother in Spanish. And so we all knew that Ita was waiting to be reunited (laughs) with her Imre when she left this world. So in 1997, uh, my beloved grandmother lay dying. It was finally melanoma that killed her. Um, but she had lived a long, beautiful life. And, 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 and as saintly as she sounds, and she was saintly, mm-hmm. totally dedicated to her only child, her daughter, and then her two grandsons, my brother and me, she was hilarious. She was mm-hmm. really, really funny. She loved to laugh. She, she cooked amazing Hungarian food, her goulash. My wife's can equal it. I'm not going to speak anything about my wife's goulash except that it's amazing. But my grandmother's goulash is what I grew up on. It right. was, you know, it was, it was a taste of heaven right there. Sure. And, uh, but at any rate, she lay dying and I was at her bedside and she took her last breath. It was unmistakable. And we were all, you know, crying. My brother and my mother are crying right next to me. But something pulled my attention away from her face and to the middle of the room where the air began to shimmer 
sort of like you, you look into a, a chandelier, a crystal chandelier, and there's like colors, you know, spectral colors, like, you know, just light passing through a spectrum. Um, not a spectrum. What's it called? A prism. 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 Yeah. It's like a chandelier <clears throat> is hundreds of little prisms, right? Right. So the light is breaking up and diffracting into all those colors. And it looked like that. Like you're just looking into all this color diffracting, light diffracting into color. And then something opened. There was kind of an opening in the middle of the room. And, and then I saw her. And it's like I was looking through this opening and she was moving away from me. And she didn't look cancer ridden, like mm. the corpse on the bed next to me. But like I knew her, my, my Ita, my beloved grandmother. But she was moving away from me mm. and towards something towards someone and I kind of, it's like I looked over her shoulder essentially and, 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 and it's my grandfather who I recognize from photographs. It's her husband, it's Imre. Hmm. She's finally reuniting with him. This is the moment, we all knew she was waiting to be reunited with him and it's happening in front, I'm seeing it. Wow. Oh my gosh. And she doesn't want to go. This is the moment she's been waiting for for 53 years. And she's reluctant. Why? Ah, he's the young, handsome man she last saw in mm. 1944. And she's an old lady. Mm. She's like, ah, oh, he's not gonna want this young, handsome man to be with an old lady. He reaches out, takes her hands and pulls her to him, embraces her, it gets brighter. She's young again, like the last time they were together. They're hugging, they're kissing. This is the kind of moment that Hollywood is forever trying to capture, mm. but it's real. And it's far more powerful and love drenched than any movie could ever capture. Sure. And they're kissing and embracing and it's getting really bright and then they're gone. And I've just lost my Ita that I love so much. And my mother and my brother are sobbing. And my eyes are pouring tears. But there's this huge smile on my face. That with her last moment in this world, Ita left me this gift. That everything that I had suspected and sensed and was drawn to, that there's this other world, a higher world, the world of souls, it's real. It's real. And I had just gotten a glimpse of it. Wow. And what do you do? What do you do with that? So when I came back to LA, she, my parents were living in Bethesda, Maryland at the time. That's where she died. So we you know, had a funeral and then I flew home. And, and I was still processing all this and I wanted to honor her. Um, and I didn't know what else to do. So I went to a synagogue, like the kind I grew up in, a big conservative show. And, um, and you understand that I'm drawn to, you know, the divine and the sense of the divine and stuff, but I don't see visions <laughs> mm. like what I had seen there. That's not something that happens to me. It's only happened to me twice by her bedside. By Abuelita's bedside. And two weeks later, when I returned to LA and I went to a synagogue. And it was just the same kind of synagogue I grew up in. Hmm. 
better attended, but more people there at Shabbat. Um, and their rabbi, the very famous rabbi uh, named David Wolpe, who's a great, great gifted speaker who really teaches Torah, you know, like, like a great professor, mm. you know, who lectures like in a great, entertaining, witty, deep manner. Um, so not, not what I thought a sermon was, you know, not, not, not the way sermons are portrayed in movies, mm. right, which can only be a snore or a lecture, right. like a, you know, a finger-wagging lecture. He lifts you up, and he's a great teacher. And, uh, uh, but it was during the Musaf Amida, right? So he gave a, a great teaching. So I was like, oh, wow, maybe Judaism isn't what I thought it was. This is really interesting. And then it was the Musaf Amida, the, the sort of, you know, late in the prayer service. And, um, you know, we're all standing and we're Shabbos reciting. It was Shabbos. And so we're all reciting the Kadosh, 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 like the mm. angels say in heaven, in mm. the vision of Isaiah. And, um, and then in that shul, the cantor had written a very beautiful melody that's now used in a lot of synagogues for the Lador Vador prayer. Could never do it justice, but it's something like I think we got we got but the, they, the, the, the but in that show, and it was it's a conservative show, and they even have a choir, you know. Okay. And um, and but it's just you know, Lador Vador means from generation to generation. And you know, everyone's singing this and and I'm weeping. And, I, and there wasn't a thought that triggered my weeping. I was just weeping. Mm. And I'm actually thinking, why am I crying? I mean, like, I miss Ita, but that, that's not making this happen. Mm. I, I'm just like water, like water pouring out of my eyes. What's going on? What's happening to me? And that's when I saw, you know, like, if you think of a Gothic arch, right? Like two big supports on either side and they meet high up. Okay. Yeah. But what I saw was two columns of light that sort of went up parallel, like infinitely high. And looking closely, more closely, it's not just light, they're souls. And it's stacked up on top of each other, sort of like a group of a group of souls together and then above them another group and then another group and then another group. Who are they? I just grasped that they're my ancestors. <laughs> they're all my ancestors going all the way back in time. And it's like there's a group and then above them another group and above them another group on both sides. They're my ancestors looking down. We're singing about from generation to generation and now I'm seeing all my ancestors, <laughs> you know? And I actually never, I, I, I've always remembered it was two columns. I never, I, I don't think I've ever thought until this moment that, okay, why two columns? Because mom's side and dad's side, that's mm. what it must be. I don't know why I never had that thought before. It's so simple. Um, but at any rate, they were looking down at me and, and the message from all of them was unmistakable. Where you been? You know, where you been? Like we've been waiting for you. You're a little late. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> um, and so it wasn't just, and you know, because my ancestors are Jewish. These are Jews. And I was finally in a synagogue 
not because, um, you know, I, not, not because somebody had guilted me into coming. Right. Not because I have this obligation to go and be bored and look at the prayer book and see how many pages until we're done and when do we eat, right? That's why my, the movie I ultimately made was called When Do We Eat? And it's just all about this idea that so many Jews are completely uninspired by Judaism. And they're just wondering, when do we eat? Mm-hmm. You know, how many pages were done and when do we eat? And that's what it had been for me before. But now I had just heard great Torah and the music was touching me so deeply that I was weeping without even knowing how much I was weeping or where it was coming from. And here is this vision of all my ancestors saying, welcome home. So that's it in terms of visions. No, no, that, that, that does, sure. That's not what I'm all about. <laughs> not, <laughs> it's only these two. You know, it's only these could two. I, could I just ask a question on the second one real quick? The, the idea that you said, where have you been? Yeah, yeah. It implies that you were suddenly, you were back somewhere that they were already hanging out. Yes. Where, where is that place? I, I, I don't know where. It's, it's, you know, look, when, when, you, when you have these kinds of experiences, where you are mm. on earth is not really that relevant, right? Sure. No. And, and even in the upper place, where you are is not that relevant because it's all about being connected to everything. Sure. God is everywhere at once. When you touch God, you feel like you're everywhere at once. And that's why whenever people talk about, hey man, it's the soul of everything, <laughs> we're all connected. And, and it sounds like a whole bunch of cliches. It's, it's because it's rooted in a truth. Right. Um, you it gets, know that it gets repeated that often because it's coming from somewhere. It's coming from somewhere and then right. this vast interconnectedness is real. Okay, so let me just let me just I, I'm on board with all that. Let me just clarify the question a bit. Mm. Where not insofar as like in which in which realm of the sphere did you meet as okay. much as there was clearly a, a moment of of a sense of well, I, I mean, just going back to the, 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 the great divide with Mark, right? It's, yeah. It was a moment and like what was somewhat bridged with the rowing. There was a moment of we get each other. I yes. get where you're coming from and you get where I'm coming from. And you or get, Heinlein would say we grok each other. Right. Yeah. yeah. You, you grokked each other. Yeah. So that grokking, there was a welcome here, right? Yes. What was, what were, what were you grokking together? A welcome back to... Well, I mean, what I understood it to be, what's interesting is I, for instance, why didn't I, you would think that that moment I would want to, well, these are all my answers. Let me go meet them. <laughs> right. Let me, let me go over, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll go to the right column first and say, who are you and who are you? <laughs> What's your name? But that didn't come up in that moment. Sure. It wasn't like that, you know? Um, it, was, it was just kind of experiencing it all at once. And... And the way that I took it was, it's no coincidence that this is happening in a synagogue Hmm. with a prayer book in my lap, Um, or I guess I'm standing with a prayer book in my hands, hearing Jews pray, hearing Jewish singing, Hebrew singing. So the thing that I grokked with all of them is is that this is all coming from and infused with and interconnected with the Misara, with the Jewish tradition. Hmm. You know, the, the, the Jews are a family and this has been, this is our inheritance. Um, you know, 
people think of Jews as sometimes that they're wealthy, you know, and that they run the world. We are wealthy, but our wealth, our real wealth is not money. Mm. You know, it, it, it's this generation after generation after generation of, of adding to this body of, of wisdom, of faith, of healing, of music. Um, it's funny, at this point I had, um, right, so this is, this is happening in 1997. So in, in, the, in, the early, in like the late 80s and early 90s, I had lived in New York City and one of, I, I've been talking about different experiences that give you a touch of the divine. Mm-hmm. Another one that I had was I, was into, I got into drumming. I got into drumming at Grateful Dead shows, right? They have drum circles. And I want to be part of the drum circle and I can't sing, but this way I can participate in the music. So I learned how to drum. Cool. But I, you know, anything I do, I try to do it with some rigor. And so I got myself a teacher and um, just turning this off. And, um, and I was learning Afro-Cuban drumming. And if you're ever in New York City uh, between April and October, this has been going for 50 years at least. Cool. Uh, there's a rumba circle that happens by the boat pond in the middle of Central Park on Sunday afternoons. Gets going in the summer, you know, maybe at 3 p.m. and into the evening. And, and they're playing Afro-Cuban music. And Afro-Cuban music is different than a drum circle at a dead show. A drum circle at a dead show is just kind of chaotic and random. And some people know how to drum and most don't. Right. And every now and then it kind of coalesces into something really cool. Mm-hmm. Afro-Cuban music is the desire for that coalescing into something really cool, practiced by people who are really good at drumming for many generations Mm. in Cuba, Mm. building on the shoulders of many, 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 many generations of people practicing this in Africa. So... So the rhythms that they've developed using a high drum, a middle drum, and a low drum, maybe a shekaray, maybe a clave, you know, the two sticks is the clave, that, that's the backbone of the rhythm. Shekaray is an accent and people singing. Right. With a song leader who call and the people respond, call and response. It's religious music um, at its heart, although it's not really experienced that way. But like, for instance, a, a, a song that they'll often sing is you know, water that will fall. I mean, it's a rain dance, you know, it's wow. essentially a rain dance. So these um, are all like pre-Christian or parallel to Christian, yeah, pre-Muslim. exactly. It's, it's just ancient, ancient stuff. stuff. And then probably Christianity crept into it, but sure. also voodoo crept into it. I mean, all kinds of different And influences. all that stuff just sort of gets layered on. Right. Right. And then, and, and it's funny because you can hear this music. I mean, Tito Puente is doing rumba, mm-hmm. right? There's lots of places to hear this music. Santana does rumba-related music. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you just get inside it, and you're playing it and singing with everybody now and then in the afternoons. Are we good? Yeah. You would touch something. Mm-hmm. You would become aware that there was a presence among the group. And the group is a very mixed group and there's alcoholics there and there's just tourists walking by. And, you know, it's just like a real mixed bunch of 
weirdos and freaks like me (laughs) (laughs) in Central Park on a Sunday afternoon. But every now and then, there would be a presence in the room that was not coming from the humans. Right. And you would just feel like, okay, there's, you know, there's an angel here. We're touching the divine. A door is opening. And and so, but, but, but but it doesn't happen in chaos. Is what mm-hmm. I'm saying. And so you go back to the rowing and the cycling. The fact that these songs have evolved with people pursuing them with, with, with rigor and precision and like evolving the music and making it better and better generation to generation mm-hmm. sort of sets the stage and makes it possible. Right. And I, and I had already learned that, you know, from the rumba circle. And so sitting in the synagogue... It was, it was not lost on me that, wait a minute, I, I missed it when I was a kid. I thought this was old and boring and atrophied and so stylized that it was now a, a distant echo of what... So, I always got that... I never thought that Sinai didn't happen. Mm-hmm. I just thought we were so far away from it that now it's like, it's just distant echoes. Right. You, can't, you can't get back to that. But now I could see sitting there that day, no, 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 no. We've been building on Sinai for all these generations. And this thing has been evolving and moving forward. And, and there's something so, so deep here. And to be so arrogant, a young man, as to say, oh, yeah, I get what that is and dismiss it. I can't, how could I have wasted so much time? Hmm. You know, that's what I was feeling as I was sitting there that day. But how this, could I have wasted so much time? This is when you were sitting there at Shul or at the drum circle? At, at Shul. Shul. At okay, Shul. so that's... And, and I, I, I realized right away, wait a minute, I've been missing this for so long. This thing that I've been looking for all over the world and all these other practices. Yeah. I should have checked my own backyard first. Well, let, let me stop wasting time. And let get on it. So then I started learning, um, taking classes, in Jewish studies, Torah studies. And L.A. is a very wealthy place in terms of Jewish learning. There's, it's a big Jewish community, and there's a lot of great rabbis here and a lot of great teachers. And in the beginning, I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to find rabbis that I, you know, that I kind of understand, that speak English. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? In other words, I could never imagine myself being Orthodox at that time. Mm-hmm. That, that just seemed crazy. Oh, those guys, they wear black hats. They do so many mitzvahs. They, they, they don't drive. I don't even so know what they do. Mitzvah. They don't eat. They don't drive. You know, it's crazy. <laughs> um, so I was just seeking out rabbis more, at, you know, where I was then. Sure. However, one of those rabbis was a very orthodox guy uh, who came from the Chabad movement. He was very famous. We lost him two years ago. It's one of the greatest losses of mankind. His name was Schwartzy. Hmm. And Schwartzy was just the most open, giving, sweetest guy who was just out there. You know, some rabbis are in Kirov and then they can say, hey, I'm a car of all these people. Yeah. Schwartzy just loved the people. Yeah. You know, so many of his family had lost so many Jews and his mission was to repopulate the world with Jews. Wow. To make those Jews connected to Judaism. Cool. You know? And so he was just trying to make Jews meet each other so that they would, you know, Jewish men would marry Jewish women and have Jewish babies <laughs> and that they would learn about, you know, Judaism and that they would just light Shabbos candles, you know, and put on tefillin and do mitzvahs. Do. Mm. That's the other thing. Do. Do the actions. You know, mm. I, I quickly started to get that. Oh, like I totally missed this, that that just like when, when you're riding that bike or, or, or pulling that oar, you need to be doing something. Action. You know, and, and putting on tefillin is an 
action. Lighting Shabbos candles is an action. Shabbos, in a sense, is stopping action, mm. but it's still intrinsically related to action. Well, it's it's you know? like, it's in the same sense, it has that, um, you have the consciousness of not acting, yes. even when you're not acting Very on Shabbos. Much. Yeah. Very much. And um, so I, thank God I had Schwartzy in my life. Um, but also other rabbis. And the thing that Schwartzy, you know, who's a Hasidic, you know, super Orthodox guy and with a long beard, uh, but also rainbow suspenders and Grateful Dead hats. And, and he was just the best. But all these other rabbis, and, you know, I count among them Jonathan Omerman, who was teaching a meditation course, uh, Mordechai Finley, who is teaching Kabbalah and a kind of reform Hasidist that's super deep. Um, uh, you know, much later, Adam Kligfeld, who's my rabbi now, uh, I mean, I have a few people that I would say my rabbi, mm-hmm. yeah. but at that stage, I didn't know Adam yet. Um, but, but, and then I took a class with this guy, David Seidenberg, uh, at, uh, at the university of Judaism. Anyway, whatever class I was taking, every rabbi would mention sooner or later, and usually sooner, the Talmud. So I quickly grasped that the Talmud is full of Jewish wisdom. Mm-hmm. So I would think, okay, well, I'd like to read that. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm into research, I'm into sources, I'm into learning, but I don't, you know, I can read Hebrew without knowing anything what I'm saying, you know, I, I, can, I can read the letters, but I, there are very few words that I knew what they meant. Sure. Um, I had no yeshiva education, but I, so I was like, okay, I like, I like to read the Talmud. I don't know what it is. I get it's, it's a book or a bunch of books. They're filled with Jewish wisdom, but that's all I know. I don't know what it is. I don't know how to find it. I don't know where to begin. And then because I'd heard that Kabbalah, you have to be 40. Maybe you don't have to be 40, but kind of you have to be 40. Uh, maybe the Talmud is for rabbis. Like you have to be a rabbi. And maybe if you're not a rabbi, you're not allowed. You know, so for all these reasons, it just seemed like beyond me. So then I, you know, but because I was getting more and more into Jewish practice and studying with different rabbis, I would find myself in the mitzvah store on Pico Boulevard, owned by Rabbi Shimon Kraft. And then he had long shelves, and it was a Jewish bookstore as well as a gift store. And, you know, you could buy a talis there, you could buy tefillin there, you could buy a, a, a kiddush cup there, and you could buy books there. And then I said, oh, that's the Talmud. It's so many books. So many books. <laughs> you know? And when I grew up, we had an Encyclopedia Britannica which was also burgundy, beautiful books, 23 volumes containing all the knowledge of mankind that's worth knowing, right? Like not every scientific formula, but basically summaries of all the knowledge of mankind in 23 volumes. And the Talmud is 73 volumes. (laughs) We have three times as much to say. What? (laughs) How is that even possible? I see we, the ones you were seeing on the shelf, they were the art scroll editions. It was the art scroll. So yeah, the nice volumes. They're beautiful. They're Gorgeous. kind of burgundy colored also. Yeah. And there's 73 volumes. How could all of the, man, the knowledge of mankind fit in 23, but the knowledge of the Jews is 73? That's like crazy. <laughs> yeah. So I would think, well, like, okay, that's the Talmud. I mean, whew. Clearly, you have to be a rabbi. That couldn't be for me, you know. 
And so often I'd be in that store, I'd look at those books, I'd think, oh, that's the Talmud, I'd like to read that, must be full of wisdom, but I wouldn't know where to begin, I don't even know if I'm allowed, uh, not for me. So I'd leave, repeat a dozen times. Mm-hmm. And so this thing with my grandmother happened in September of 1997, and by the, and, and then, you know, when I was in the, standing in the mitzvah store in front of the volumes of Talmud for the dozenth time, it was March 2005. And I went through that same thought process and uh, intimidated, walked away, leaving. And then something stopped me. And I thought, I went to Harvard and I majored in English and graduated with honors. I went to law school and graduated with a degree from a big law school and passed the bar on the first time and practiced law in one of the most prominent uh, corporate law firms in New York City. And then I left and I went to film school and I got into you know, one of the best film schools in the country where they were taking 18 applicants out of 700 people. And I had no business getting in because I had no background whatsoever in film. It's another story, but I had decided I want to make movies. And and somehow managed to get in. I did that largely through research and reading. And I'm just into books. And so is my wife. And our house is filled with books. And now, once again, I'm walking away like a, like a little girl with my tail between my legs. Or like a little puppy with my tail between my legs. Sorry, I wasn't trying to be sexist. But like a little puppy, a scared puppy with my tail between my legs backing down from a book. Hmm. Why? There's just books. There must be a book one of the Talmud. <laughs> I don't think it's all of the books. I'll just get book one and see what it's like. <laughs> so I picked up the nearest one and it has a table of contents and apparently Brachas is the first book of the Talmud. Yeah. Okay, Brachas. Here's a Brachas. Pick out the brachas. I, you know, now I'm, I'm feeling kind of good about myself. You know, it's a big moment. Shoulders back. You, you know. finally. I'm going to buy it myself a Talmud. <laughs> Fantastic, <laughs> right? So I take my volume one of the Talmud and I walk up to the counter and I put it down on the counter. And the kid at the register says, ah, "You're doing dafyomi." So I say, "What's dafyomi?" And now, this is an audio podcast, so I'll describe for your listeners what I'm doing. He looked at me like this. He just dropped the the spectacles to the end of the nose. Yes, he lowered his spectacles to the end of his nose to look over his lenses at me, as if to say, are you kidding me? And I thought, oh man, Dafyomi must be a code. And if you don't know the code, you're not allowed to read the book. This is how they weed out the people who are allowed to read the book from the people who are not allowed to read the book. And I've just revealed myself as one who's not allowed to read the book. He's got to get rid of me. He looks like a really nice guy. He's going to try to do that without humiliating me. Oh, man, why did I ever get this Talmud? What am I doing here? This is so stupid. I'm such an idiot. And he says, Dafyomi is a program where people around the world read the entire Talmud on the same schedule. 
Dafyomi means page of the day. They read one page a day for seven and a half years. And today is day one of the Dafyomi schedule. So let's just unpack that for a second. I could have bought book one on the, in the first month of a seven and a half year schedule. And that would have been amazing. Mm. What a coincidence. Yeah. I could have bought book one in week one of a seven and a half year schedule. And that would have been unbelievable. But no, I bought book one of the Talmud on day one of a seven and a half year program. So if you ever, you know, wonder what it looks like when God speaks to you in the language of events with great clarity, <laughs> that was it. And, uh, and I, said, uh, I said to the man at the counter, who I later learned was named Zach, Zach Plotzker. I didn't know him then. I mean, I bought a few things from him, but I didn't know him by name. Mm. But I said, oh, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> I took the book. I walked outside. I'm like, one in seven and a half years. It's 365 days a year times seven plus half a year. Works out to it's a 2,711 to one <laughs> odds that this would ever happen. Poor. And I said, okay, God, I get the message. I'm doing Dafyomi. So the people who do Dafyomi look more like you, Yitzi, than they look like me. They grew up with religious parents. They went to yeshiva. They could speak Hebrew and understand what they were saying mm. at a young age. They went to yeshiva and they learned Talmud with Talmud professors, you know, who unpacked this for them. And even they, the vast majority who begin Dafyomi, do not finish. Mm -hmm. It's such a big commitment. It's an hour a day, every day, no matter what. But God put the book in my hand, so I had to find a way and stay with it. And, uh, and I did. And I did. Oh, and I stayed with it. And in 2012, uh, I was blessed to complete Shas as we say in the Talmud game. <laughs> um, and, uh, and as I was approaching the end of the cycle, I started blogging about it. And uh, first it was a blog of the Jewish Journal, but if you have a blog, you should have a Facebook page. Mm -hmm. And it's the Facebook page that really took off. And Facebook was a good platform for me in the beginning, not so much because it's social media and allows you to connect with people. That, obviously that's very important. But what was good for me about Facebook is that a blog is like, you know, six to 800 words. Mm -hmm. Take a thought, develop the thought, review the thought, conclude the thought. Mm -hmm. but Facebook posts are like, it could be 800 word, you know, blog post one day, but the next day it could be just one verse from Pierre Kealos, one piece of mm. wisdom. And the next day it could be an image of something that moves me. And the next day it could be a recipe of so that moved me when I ate it. Mm. <laughs> it's just like you could just right. go all over. And so it was a way for me to really express my love for this tradition according to how it was moving me at that time, on that day. It's amazing. And it was very authentic and people seemed to respond to it. And right at the beginning, you know, so by this time, by 2012, okay, I had made When Do Eat, released When Do Eat, and now made another movie called Saving Lincoln, story of Abraham Lincoln and his closest friend and bodyguard, Ward Hill Lamb. And 
And when we marketed uh, Saving Lincoln, we used Facebook. And so I'd learned a little bit about using Facebook as a way to reach people. Mm -hmm. So I created a little Facebook ad and spent $5 a day. And the ad said, writer-director Salvador Litvak, or no, sorry, film director Salvador Litvak read the entire Talmud and now shares Jewish wisdom daily. And it was a picture, not of me, but of a group of young people celebrating Hanukkah in a concentration camp in Westerbork, Holland, in 1943. I think almost all of them died. They 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 were there in this transit camp and then they were sent to Auschwitz. But for that moment, in the midst of that darkness, they were creating light. So it was that image, it's a famous picture, you can look it up, Westerbork. 1943. Um, And so for that moment, you know, they were making light in the darkness and that's what I felt I was doing. And and so that little ad is how most people found it. Or not most, I think it was a combination of people sharing posts and I had a few things go viral. And, you know, so it's a combination of people find the ad, see the ad, like, who is this guy? What's he talking about? What is this? And the audience just grew and it grew very fast. and, uh, and so now we're 1.1 million people around the world. Uh, I would say that maybe somewhere between 35 and we've guesstimated, it's around 40%, like about 40% Jewish, maybe a little less than 40% Jewish, the rest not Jewish. Wow. You know, um, but whether you're Jewish or not, you can sense the authenticity and time-tested truth of these ancient teachings. Yeah. And I think that's what people are drawn to. And as you can see, I'm a yacker. <laughs> <laughs> I, I imagine usually on your podcast, you have more of a back and forth, and I apologize for talking it, it so flips, much. It flips from situation to situation, but like this has been fantastic. No, we have so, to do a lot more work to yeah. get good content. So... Uh, but I've just always, I'm somebody who loves to share what I'm excited about yeah. and I've always done that and people responded to it and it's grown and grown. And, um, but it could never have grown without Nina. I mean, we really do this all together. In the beginning, it was just very raw and unpackaged. And, you know, over time we've, you know, like Facebook live started, you know, a few years into this. So we started doing live shows and that way we could interact with the audience in real time. And, and we started, you know, it, it's t- it, it has come to take up so much time that I, you know, I haven't made a movie since Saving Lincoln. Oh, wow. Um, I would really like to make another movie, but I've been so busy with Accidental Talmudist and it means so much to so many people. that I, It's like, I can't stop, you know? But I certainly do exercise you know, my, my craft as a director, uh, in the videos that we make. I mean, we, we do edited, you know, videos act. We, we make often do humor videos with actors, you know, with a cast and, uh, and I'm just, then I'm, you know, directing a film on a set. It's not a feature film. I'm not directing for months at a time, but we'll have these one day shoots where I get to use that muscle, but I'm also using that muscle all the time. And when we do, you know, hero stories as videos or man on the street interviews or social experiments. Uh, when I'm trying to capture musical davening, when it's not on Shabbat or a holiday, but that's why Rosh Hodesh is so important in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm just, I'm just always trying to capture, you know, what it is that so moves me about Judaism and share that. It's beautiful. Well, we uh, don't have much time left here, but I figured it, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask for a little bit of Torah over this. So is there, is there a piece of Torah in particular that's um, resonating for you today? Um, well, I mean, the thing that I was just thinking about earlier today, because we're recording this on Purim, <laughs> today's yeah. Purim, it'll so be now, released some other time in the future, but <laughs> for, everyone knows how long the editing for Yitzhi and me is. in LA today, it's Purim. <laughs> it is. So, uh, so just a few hours ago, and I'm really talked out now because <laughs> I spent an hour and a half online with the audience reading the book of Esther. Uh, and you can do a Megillah reading in 20 minutes. Why did it take an hour and a half? Uh, because I was elucidating. I mean, I was teaching out things as they were coming up. Uh, what I've always done with our audience is that I assume uh, maximum intelligence and minimum knowledge. Mm. Right. So I, I don't I, I never want people to feel bad because they don't know something, you know, so I explain everything, but I don't dumb it down. I assume people are bright enough to understand if I give a good explanation. That's brilliant. That's how I, I, I didn't that. make that up, but somebody said that. It's Maximum great. intelligence and minimum knowledge. Yes. Yeah, cool. Yes. It probably should be said minimum knowledge, maximum intelligence. Maybe that sounds a little different. Fair. But at any rate, um, so the thing that stood out to me today in the book of Esther um, is the fact that, that when the bad guy, Haman, really exactly yeah he's not just some historical character who wears funny hat and we say boo when we hear his name Mm. i mean this was a hitler you know this was a hitler um and and who put in motion a plan that would have resulted in the murder of every jew in the world in one day i mean this was an evil with big dreams Mm. he was ambitious Mm. And he was in placed so he could do it. He could get that job done. He was rich enough and influential enough that he could make that happen. And it almost happened. Uh, and yet, the, in the events of the Megillah, of the Book of Esther, all of his plans not only failed, but ricocheted right back and re- resulted in his death, his execution, and all his wealth and influence, which he had prepared in order to destroy the Jews, went to the Jews. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mordecai and Esther became the custodians of that wealth, and they used it for good. Um, and, and, and Mordecai became, you know, even more influential with the king than Haman had been. All of it ricocheted. But the thing that really stood out to me this year is this little moment when or, or two moments, and, and they're domestic moments mm-hmm. in Haman's home, right? First, he comes home and he says to his wife and his buddies that, you know, he's a real bragger. He says, you know, I'm the richest man in the world. After, I'm the second richest man in the world. There's the king and then me. Mm. And I'm the second most powerful man in the world. And I have everything. I have Houses, cars, not cars, houses, you know. Carriages. Carriages. (laughs) Ten handsome sons who are brilliant and accomplished in their own right and who share my values, who want to do what I want to do. 
right? Not just because I told them to do it, because they share my values. And they're, they're with me. We're going to destroy all these Jews. We're going to do it together. I was able to transmit that to my sons. Thank God. Thank goodness, <laughs> right? And, uh, and so he's accomplished so much. You'd think that he has everything that a man, he's a man in full. Mm. But he says to his wife and his buddies, and yet all of this means nothing to me whenever I see that Jew Mordechai who won't bow down to me. You know, that this one guy who, who, who base, what, why? Why does he hate Mordecai so much? It's not just that Mordecai won't bow to him. You know, you're allowed to, in martial arts, that was another thing that I did. Mm. I got a black belt in Taekwondo, you know? And so, <laughs> and I always had the question, can we bow? Can a Jew bow? Because, you know, in martial arts, you, you bow. After you spar, you bow to your partner, before and after. And, uh, and of course you can do that. It's like shaking hands. You're not worshiping that person. You cannot bow to an idol. Right? So if the custom is to bow in a form of shaking hands, that's okay. But Haman had an idol that he wore on a chain around his neck. Might have even been himself as an idol or some god that he worshipped. I don't know what it was. But Mordecai could recognize immediately that this guy is in the grips of idolatry, that he uses his wealth for evil purposes, and that what he would be bowing down to is that. Mm. He's bowing to idolatry itself, not just to a God, but to, to a man living out idolatry. And Mordecai would not bow down. And what bothered Haman so much is not just that this Jew wouldn't bow to him, it's that this Jew saw right through him. Right? I think that's what was instinctively going on for Haman. But at any rate, he says to his wife and his buddies that all, of, all, my, all, all my accomplishments, all my wealth, all my power means nothing to me because this Jew won't bow to me. So they say, so kill him. It's a pretty simple answer, right? Mm -hmm. You're so powerful. And do it in a big public way. Make a spectacle out of it. Build a gallows 50 cubits high. It's like, set, what is that, 75 feet high? Something like that. Yeah. I mean, in other words, make a huge public spectacle out of killing the Jew, Mordechai then you'll feel good because you'll, you'll, you'll show that, you know, your system, your beliefs, your accomplishments triumph over whatever this Jew represents. And he says, good idea. I love it. I'm running with that. He has the gallows built right in front of his house and he goes to the king because, you know, this is a big thing. You can, Haman could certainly, I think, just kill any random Jew with his power and prestige, be fine. Hmm. But to create a spectacle like this in the capital city, okay, since he's the right-hand man of the king, he better get the king's okay. Also, I think, wasn't uh, Mordechai the exilarch? Like he was the head of the Jews in exile at the time? Yes. Yeah. Certainly a member of the Sanhedrin. Right. I don't know if he was the head of all the Jews. Maybe he was. But certainly he was a powerful figure among the Jews. Uh, and so it was a big act. Yeah. Right. And the Persians were not anti-Semites. Mm. It's not like the Jews were enslaved in Persia and having the same kind of life that we were having in Egypt, you know, after a Pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph. Right. Um, so, so, so what's going on is Haman is getting his followers to create a movement to kill all the Jews. Mm -hmm. And he's doing it so fast, you know, in less than a year's time, he's going to get this whole thing in motion where all the Jews are going to be killed. His plot to kill all the Jews 
it, and his plot to kill Mordechai are one and the same plot. One and the same, and it says so. Hmm. It says in the Megillah that, uh, what, what does it say? That it would be beneath his honor just to kill Mordechai. And, and so what he wants to do is kill all the Jews, and that way he'll get rid of Mordechai. Jeez. At the same, by at the same time getting rid of all his people. It's like a total, <laughs> I'll get you and all your people too. Right. So, um, oh. so he goes to check with the king if it's okay to hang Mordechai in this super public way. And of course, the events of the Megillah are that by this time, Mordechai, who once saved the king's life, the king remembers that, hey, didn't somebody save my life and we didn't do anything for him? Mm. And his advisors are like, yeah, it was that Jew Mordechai. And he's like, oh, we got to honor him. We got to do something for him. What do we do for him? What do we do for him? And that's the moment where Haman walks in. Mm. And the king says to him, what do I do for a man that the king wishes to honor? Haman, being the greatest egotist of all time, assumes immediately that, oh, he wants to honor me. I'm his right-hand man. So he says, oh, well, to honor a man, a man who the king wishes to honor should be paraded around the capital city on the king's horse in the king's clothes with an important minister leading the king's horse. So that everyone understands that this is the most honored man in the kingdom after the king. And the king says, great, do that for Mordecai. And Haman has to do that. And all day long, walk in front of a horse with Mordecai on it, the king's horse, and he's wearing the king's clothes. And you can only imagine what's going on in Haman's mind. He's so angry, so humiliated, so bitter. He gets home and he's reporting to his wife and his buddies that instead of putting this beautiful plan into action, getting permission from the king to hang Mordecai in the most public way, he had to parade Mordecai around the capital on the king's horse, in the king's clothing, honoring him in the most public way. And he himself, Haman, walking in front of the horse while Mordecai is riding, a totally subservient, you know, figure. Mm. And, uh, and then this is the moment that really caught my attention today. It's the wife's response. His wife says to him, well, if this Mordecai is of Jewish stock, then your plans will surely fail and you will be defeated by him. Now, what? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> Didn't she just say, like, earlier that day? Maybe the day before, but I think actually that day? Hmm. Uh, well, if this Jew is bothering you, because Haman had said, all of my glory means nothing to me because of Mordecai the Jew. So she knew that this guy who bugs her husband is a Jew. And she said, so kill him. And now she's saying, well, if he's a Jew, he's going to defeat you. There's nothing you can do. And your star is falling. What happened there? It, it, you, could, you could see her saying, wow, I can't believe it. Maybe we were wrong. Uh, you know, it, it, Maybe what she's saying is in light of this unbelievable ricochet <laughs> that you went to kill him publicly and instead it fell to you to honor him publicly, there must be something about him and his people that is otherworldly. Hmm. And maybe it's, it's that he's Jewish. 
the fact that he's Jewish makes him part of something that is more powerful than our evil plans. You know, and so she changed. Her attitude changed. Now, is she just being a fair weather troll? (laughs) (laughs) Meaning that, well, I I always back the winning side. So this morning, you were the winning side. Apparently, (laughs) you're no longer the winning side. And I'm going to sign up with these Jews. It says in the Megillah, late in the Megillah, that many non-Jews became Jewish on that day. For the fear of the Jews was upon them. For the fear of the Jews was upon them. Yeah. I I, I think in that context, do do you really join something that you fear? Or do you join something that awes you? Right. I think awe is just a better translation. Yeah, for Yira, yeah? For Yira. Yeah, yeah. We should check the Megillah. Is Yira being used there? Oh, no, I think I looked it up. I think it was Pachad Yisrael. So terrifying? Yeah, like terror. Terror. But I think it was in the context of there was like a planned slaughter of all the Jews. And then like at the last moment, the king issued a decree. Actually, on this day, the Jews should band together and defeat their enemies. And so there were real battles and a whole lot of people died. And they won. And they won every battle. So, okay, maybe there were... But it was clear that the Jews weren't terrorists. They weren't going to go out and kill people who weren't trying to kill them. Right. Right? So why would you be terrified of them? I think it's much more of an awe Hmm. that, oh, we have people in our midst who they're part of something bigger. And, you know, we we shouldn't fight that. Hmm. We should welcome it and be part of it. And so as I did my live show today, I mean, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I usually share Jewish teachings, but not in any kind of... uh, triumphalist way Mm. because I believe that we Jews have been nurturing Jewish wisdom for thousands of years on behalf of not the Jews. Mm. I don't think that we've been treasuring all this wisdom just for our sake. We have been treasuring all this wisdom as custodians of this wisdom on behalf of all people, right? That's why the mission of accidental Talmudists is to share Jewish wisdom with everybody. We take the command, be a light unto the nations, Mm. seriously. (laughs) Well, to me, just what you're saying now, it sounds um, even, even older than the light upon the, among the nations is from um, the, the four books of of the Torah that are actually about Moses' life. But um, even earlier, when, when God's making his first covenants with Abraham, he says, one of the lines is, and through you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Those who bless you will be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed. We are a ricochet force, Hmm. you know, and every nation that fell on tough times and decided, oh, well, the reason that we're on tough times is the Jews. Let's get rid of the Jews. That is a nation with no memory. That is a nation that has forgotten that as it rose to greatness, there were Jews in it and the Jews helped. Every nation that rose to greatness had Jews in it and was helped by the Jews. And when they turned on the Jews... They lost their greatness. Mm. Yeah. There's this beautiful line um, I remember just from when the Spanish Inquisition happened and, and the Christian rulers of Spain said, all the Jews either convert or out. The, um, I think the sultan in Turkey at the time was Bayezid II. He said, said, what a fool Philip of Aragon is. Yeah. That he took his biggest treasure and sent it to me. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
And this, and low, one of the loci of power shifted east from Spain to Turkey. Yeah, no question. Um, and 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 so we see. And this is what's. And this is the thing about the Jews. We have wisdom on behalf of everybody, but we don't make you be Jewish. Mm-hmm. You don't have to join the Jews to benefit from Jewish wisdom. You know, we, we will freely share it with you. Uh, there is a role for everybody. That's what the Noahide laws are really about. Everyone can come close to Hashem. You don't have to be a Jew. Uh, there's, there's still a lot of work to do. Yeah. You know, the seven Noahide laws are not that easy to follow. It sounds like, oh, don't eat a limb from a living animal. Yeah, I don't really have an urge. Got that one sorted <laughs> easily. Yeah. Don't really have an urge to tear a limb off a living animal. So I'm, I'm in. I've got one down. You know? Don't steal. Yeah, I'm with that. Don't murder. Come on, me. I'm not a murderer. Of course I wouldn't do that. Uh, so they sound like they're easy. But actually the first law, the first Noahide law that applies to all human beings is to know God. K-N-O-W. To know God. To know that God created the world. That he did so for a reason. That you can have a relationship with God. And that you can learn more about God. In other words, to learn, to study, to talk Torah, you know, to have conversations like this, to be curious about God and God's world. That's an active commandment. And that applies to everybody. And, you know, I think that at Accidental Talmudist, we enable people to know about God and, and this tradition of teaching that wouldn't know about it otherwise. It's beautiful. And that's why it's so important. Gorgeous. I'm reminded of this line from Habakkuk. Um, At the end of times, the knowledge of the glory of God shall fill the earth like like the ocean fills the seabed. Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, beautiful. Gorgeous. Well, the, the, um, the internet is rich with Torah in no small part due to your own work. So thank you. And thank you so much for coming on today. If you have like a... a Something, I mean, it's Purim now and we're recording this. If you're looking ahead from this Purim to next Purim, is there, a, is there a shift or something you want to see either here in your own work or in the world? Something you're praying for? Well, we, we are the largest Judaism page on social media. What does that mean? It means we're on social media. So what is social media? Social media is an opportunity which is the most amazing, unbelievable opportunity that has ever existed. There's never been anything like social media in the history of mankind. What does that mean? You know, up until, I don't know, 300 years ago, 200 years ago, 100 years ago, I mean, you you could send letters to people in other parts of the world. You could uh, read a book about people in other parts of the world. But you could not directly interact with them. Mm. Only people who are in the same space as you could you have a real-time interaction. So then eventually there was a telephone. Okay, that's big. That's big. Now you could talk to somebody who's a continent away. That's amazing. Um, And then there was radio. So one person could talk to many, many people who are not in the same space as him. And then television, you could see that person talking. But eventually, because of the internet and social media, 
anybody can interact with so many other people at any time. A connectedness, which is extreme and, and, and utterly transformative. And the thing is, when you interact with people on the internet, and you interact with them in many ways, but a typical way in social media is looking through a, a news feed. Oh, there's a person I like, there's a person I like, there's a boring, that's story, that's boring, that's not mm. for me, there's a headline, I don't care about it, but, 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 but. And you're just flicking through it, dismissing one person after another, often in a tenth of a second. Mm. Not for me, 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 not for me. Uh, this person's kind of, no, that's not really interesting. Not for me, not for me, not for me. This is for me, and now I'm done. And not for me, not for me, not for me. <laughs> you know? And you're just having one-on-one -on -one interactions at such high speed and dismissing all these people. Yeah. Now, why do I keep coming back to this idea of one-on-one -on -one interactions? Because our sages teach, Rabbi Hananiah ben Taradion, when two sit together and no Torah passes between them, it is a session of scorners. It is two people saying, I know what the world is all about, God, mod, whatever, you know, what I want right now is what's important. Hey, you got some good gossip for me. I got some good gossip for you. Let's talk about this guy who's such an idiot. You know? And that's a session of scorners. But when two sit together and Torah does pass between them, the divine presence rests upon them. God pays attention to those two people. You and I right now, we're sharing Torah at this moment. Right now, we're talking about the teaching from our sages. The divine presence is with us. God is smiling that we're exchanging this information. And people who are listening to this right now, Torah's passing between us, you and me, you and me, Mr. Listener, Mrs. Listener, wherever you are, we're sharing something. And, and, and so every one of these one-on-one -on -one interactions is an opportunity. Will a little Torah pass between us or not? If it does, we're adding divinity to the whole system. When enough of us add divinity, holiness, spirituality to the whole system by exchanging words of Torah, well, maybe that's what Mashiach is waiting for. Maybe. Salut, An absolute pleasure to have you on the show. <laughs> God bless.